Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on end-of-life care and hospice care. All right, well, welcome. Thank you all for being here. Um, as you may recall, I'm Lauren Goodman. I'm faculty at Ohio State in the divisions of pulmonary critical care and in palliative medicine. So you can see how this topic is of particular interest to me. Um, and really, with how we withdraw mechanical ventilation is something that I became very interested in first as a resident. Um, we paid a lot of attention when I was on my ICU rotations to the discussions of should we continue or should we withdraw. But the majority of the intensivists didn't really give a lot of thought or a lot of direction to us as residents for how to do it well. And it was something that really that I saw sometimes go well, sometimes not. And as I progressed through the rest of my training, it was really something that I felt needed a lot more attention. Um, looking through the literature, a lot of what's been written over the years is very old. A lot of it is very one-size-fits-all. Um, and when you think about the the wide variety of people we see who are on ventilators, who are undergoing palliative withdrawal of ventilation, a one-size-fits-all strategy really doesn't work. And so this is really a passion of mine. This is something that I, I went through an updated OSU's guideline, which is now available um, for, for everyone to use um, through the evidence-based guidelines site. And I hope over the next 40-ish minutes, I'll be able to help you think through the process a little bit more and think about some of those factors that will affect how your patients will feel and how we make sure that this process goes smoothly for them and for their families. Um, so we'll talk briefly about some of the ethical and legal issues. Um, this will be covered more in depth in other talks, I'm sure. We will talk, and the, the overall thesis that I have is that withdrawal is a medical procedure. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to just wing it. You need to have a plan. And with that, you need to think about what symptoms is my patient likely to have and how are we gonna control those? And really planning ahead is the best way to prevent crises. So the principles, um, the, uh, the critical care group at University of Washington has done a whole lot of writing on this. Um, Gerard Rubenfeld and uh, Randy Curtis in particular out there have done a lot of great writing. There's a great book um, about managing death in the critical care setting um, that they edited uh, that's been out for a number of years. But really the principles are, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times people will say, gosh, you know, you're, you're pulling the plug, you want them to die. That's really not our goal. Our goal is to continue whatever treatments are beneficial to the patient, but to stop those that are burdensome and not helpful. Over the past several decades, um, in the ethical literature, it's become more accepted that once you've started a treatment, it's okay to withdraw it as if, it, just as if you decide that something is not likely to be beneficial, it's okay to withhold it. There's some who even argue that it's preferable 
to try a treatment, see if it works. If it's working, great, continue it. If it's achieving the goals, great. If it's not achieving the goals, it may actually be preferable to, to give it that chance, to see if it works, if the burdens of the treatment um, are, are acceptable to the patient to see if they get benefit. Try it. If it's working, great. If it's not, okay, we tried it. Let's stop if it's not doing it. And something that's important to think about, too, is if you're thinking about whether one treatment is not achieving benefit, it's probably worth thinking about all the treatments that we're providing. If we're providing mechanical ventilation and that's not helping, but we're also providing dialysis, probably worth thinking about the whole package of critical illness. So who needs to be involved? I'm sure over, over the past months, you've all gotten a lot of experience thinking about who needs to be involved in these decisions. Certainly if the patient is able, they should be, need to be, if they have the capacity. If they're not, and ideally even if they are um, able, um, but are likely to lose capacity over the course of their illness, having their legal surrogate involved is really important too, to, so that they can understand what the patient was thinking, so they can understand what the medical team was thinking, so they don't try to come in after the patient has lost capacity and say, hey, wait a minute, he didn't understand. And we see that a lot. The attending physician of record needs to be involved and aware of what's going on. Fortunately, you don't see this terribly often, but every so often there will be issues. Um, this is a legal requirement, certainly in the state of Ohio, and as far as I know, in every state. Um, and then you want to think about who else should be involved? Who else would be helpful? Who else can be supportive to the patient and surrogate? Who else can provide medical information that, that would guide the decision-making? Sometimes that's consultants, sometimes that's the patient's primary care physician or their primary outpatient physician, whether that's the oncologist, nephrologist, cardiologist, etc. Often having social work or chaplaincy present to be that more emotional support um, to think about the spiritual or emotional side of this decision-making process because it is incredibly difficult. Um, and then often in the ICUs, we will try to have the bedside nurse present um, for family meetings because they've been there with the patient. They've seen what that patient has gone through. They've seen what that family has been through. They know some of the statements that the family has made, and they can often help to bridge sometimes if there's a gap between what the medical team's saying and the, what the family is hearing or saying back. Sometimes that bedside nurse can really be that, that very important bridge. Um, and then sometimes having family friends can be helpful. Sometimes that can be detrimental. Really, it just depends on what support that, that family, that surrogate needs, what support that patient needs. So who should we consider for this? Um, there's not a lot written, but um, when I first looked at OSU's original guideline, one of the first categories of people that was mentioned to think about withdrawing life support in was those who were comfort care who had inadvertently been started on life support. We hope we don't see that terribly often, but you can imagine how it would occur. Um, 
someone who has been worsening despite maximal support. And that doesn't have to be, you know, we have a 95-year-old with every single organ failing, but, you know, we haven't tried ECMO yet, so we need to try that first. We don't. It's despite maximal support that is medically reasonable, that is medically indicated, and that it is acceptable to that patient. And then there's this much more gray category, um, and I see this a lot, um, particularly spending time in our long-term acute care hospital, failing to improve despite maximal support or despite ongoing critical care support. And this is a really tough category. Um, this is that category of people where they're on the ventilator, they may be on dialysis, they're probably getting enteral feeds, they're not getting worse, they're not necessarily about to die, but they probably wouldn't live without all those critical care supports. And we can't keep them as they are right now forever, a tube in the mouth, tube in the nose, those sorts of things. So do we place that trach, that peg, maybe that long-term dialysis line? Is that something that would be acceptable to them? Or is that something they said they would never accept? And that's where understanding their values is so important. And then a lot of times people will ask me about brain death. And this um, is, is a very special and separate category. Um, there are very specific laws about if you suspect brain death, you have to evaluate for it. You are not allowed to discontinue life support on someone who may be brain dead until you have proven that they are not. If you prove that they are brain dead, then they have to be evaluated by the local organ procurement agency before you can proceed. Um, and this is often really difficult for families because often you've been talking about should we continue, should we change our goals. And if things, if that discussion takes long enough and things change clinically, to then be told, oh, wait, we need to have someone else take a look and this process can take hours can be really, really difficult. Um, but it is, it is a legal requirement. So thinking about the steps, um, I'm sure in training everyone's gotten a lot of information about how to discuss and what to discuss and we've talked about with whom to discuss. So what steps do we need to take and how do we take those steps? Um, some people think about, well, you know, I want to I wanna make it as quick and painless as possible for the patient and the family. Let's just take it all off, like pulling off a Band-Aid. And that's certainly one possible approach, depending on the patient's needs and the, the family and surrogate's needs. There is a small amount of evidence to suggest that performing withdrawals of, of life supports, um, if you have multiple supports in place, um, that doing it in a staggered approach, um, not over days to weeks, but certainly over hours, can be beneficial um, psychologically and emotionally for the family, can result in improved family satisfaction. And really it's about the patient. What are their goals? What symptoms are we likely to get as we remove each life support? And are they likely to survive without each individual piece? 
if the family or the patient is very, very focused on getting that tube out of their mouth, then that may be something that we, that we think about doing along with some of the other steps, where if that's sort of the last focus and getting that infernal dialysis machine out of the room is really the most important thing, that's okay too. Really it's about the individual patient and their goals and how are they likely to do. Some of the other supports that are important to think about that, that sometimes become almost invisible um, in the room. Some have, you know, giant machines in the room. Some are just, you know, another bag hanging on the IV pole. But things that are important to think about, artificial hydration and nutrition, this can be a big sticking point for families especially where if we talk about withdrawing hydration and nutrition, sometimes they feel like we're starving them or torturing them, and really that's not the case. Um, I know that there will be other, other talks in this series about the withdrawal of artificial hydration and nutrition, but it's something that we do very, very frequently in the ICU, and it's something that's important to think about. Pressors are very commonly used in patients with critical illness. And again, they can be one of those supports that's just, just a little bag hanging there and can kind of blend in with everything else. Paralytics are a big um, issue that we need to think about. As we're starting to think about the process of withdrawing, particularly the ventilator, can that patient breathe on their own? Do they have the opportunity to even try? And can we see what, what symptoms they're showing us? They may not be able to tell us because of encephalopathy or sedation, but if we can't even look at their faces to see grimacing, furrowed brows, um, if we can't look to see if they're using accessory muscles to show us shortness of breath, we may entirely miss symptoms and cause a whole lot of suffering at the end of someone's life. The other piece is that it is at least ethically questionable, if not um, at least ethically very questionable to extubate somebody where we are inducing the complete inability to breathe. Um, certainly there are people who are unable to breathe on their own due to things like quadriplegia. That's not something that we're causing. That's not something that we can correct. That is perhaps to some people ethically gray, but for us to cause them to not be able to breathe and not be able to show us symptoms is, is something to strenuously avoid, in my view. Um, some, another piece that we often forget about is implanted defibrillators. Um, those are important to talk about at the time that we think about should we forego attempts at resuscitation in case of cardiac arrest, no matter what the rest of the clinical picture is. Um, pacemakers in general do not get turned off um, unless they're felt to be prolonging the dying process. There's a lot of interesting literature out there about pacemakers um, and potential discontinuation. In general, they likely help to reduce symptoms or at least keeping them going does not induce symptoms. Um, my typical practice is to keep them running. Um, dialysis, we've talked some about, can be 
a big intrusive machine, um, blood flowing out, blood flowing back in, um, can be helpful to run sometimes even a little bit more aggressively if a patient has a lot of pulmonary edema in particular. Um, that can be helpful to reduce symptoms. Um, so sometimes while we're heading towards reduction of, of life support, sometimes we will even use a life support as a way of, of reducing symptoms while we're working towards pulling them off. And then less typically, um, th these are much less likely that you'll have to um, think about these, but every so often you'll see a patient who's on either pulmonary vasodilators or systemic vasodilators. And these I would advise the, the general palliative um, practitioner to discuss with the intensivist, with the pulmonologist, with the cardiologist um, in terms of how should we step these down, should we step these down, and how do we prevent symptoms as we're doing that, if we're going to do it. So thinking about the literature, you can imagine probably that this is a pretty tough thing to study and therefore a pretty tough thing to write about. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine how do you ask a family that's going through even considering this process, hey, so we don't know enough about how this works. Can we study how your loved one does? Pretty awkward, huh? So as such, there's, there's not a lot of research out there, there's not a lot of literature um, to support how to do this, how to do it well. Um, over the years, there have been roughly eight studies done, just shy of 400 patients. Um, and the quality of the studies varies, the, the quality of the papers does vary some. Um, interestingly, they go through and talk about the methods that they used for withdrawal of the ventilator. Um, a few used exclusively extubation for every single patient. A few used a rapid wean over 15 minutes. Um, a few used various uh, with no rationale given and no great description of what those methods were. And three just didn't talk about how they did it. Not a lot of guidance there, is it? Um, the conclusions from this, uh, this meta-analysis of those studies um, was able to come up with a few general guidelines, which was consider pre-medicating for symptoms, particularly if a patient has been symptomatic um, leading up to withdrawal or if they're on high settings. Um, certainly monitoring for respiratory distress, anxiety, pain, um, documenting, treating, and documenting response um, is important, and that's certainly a, a guiding principle for, for everything that we do. And then in this study, um, they, they, or in this meta-analysis, they were able to look at these not quite 400 patients, and there was a pretty broad range of even median survival, anywhere from half an hour to not quite eight hours. And so that leads to another question that we get, um, that we will get to in a minute. First, we'll talk a little bit about what are the methods that we can use. Um, and so, you know, we've alluded to with that meta-analysis that there, there are different ways of doing this, um, and there's no one way that's right for every patient. 
So you can wean the settings, you can not wean the settings. You can extubate, remove the endotracheal tube, or not remove the endotracheal tube. And then you can put people on room air or oxygen, or if you don't extubate, you can keep on a little bit of vent support, or just what we call a T-piece, which is just some corrugated tubing that attaches to the endotracheal tube and just provides oxygen or room air, um, but not with any sort of pressure. Um, and so there's a lot of options, and there's, there's a lot of considerations. I would say that anecdotally, at least, most institutions have one method that's prevalent. You know, people started using one method and taught their trainees, this is how we do it, and that was how they learned to do it, and that's how they continue to do it. But as I, as I alluded to, you know, I, I think about ventilators a lot, I think about this process a lot, and I've seen it a lot. And really that one size fits all doesn't, doesn't particularly work. Um, factors to consider are how much pressure does the patient need, whether that's PEEP, the positive end expiratory pressure, whether that's pressure support, and that can be either with the, uh, the amount of pressure it takes to give them the set volume you want to give them, or if you've got them breathing on pressure control or on a spontaneous pressure support, how much oxygen are they needing? We talked in our dyspnea talk about um, oxygenation. Hypoxia doesn't necessarily lead to dyspnea, or doesn't necessarily correlate with dyspnea, but it certainly can as well. We need to think about what respiratory rate is going on, and that's both what do we have the ventilator set at, and what's the patient doing. Um, sometimes we have the ventilator set to breathe very, very fast, and it can be hard to tell what's the patient ask, actually asking for. Um, if we have the, the ventilator set to breathe very, very fast, and the patient is breathing also very fast, but just less, we may miss if we just go straight to extubation, we may miss that sign of respiratory distress. Thinking about secretions, I, I think about sputum a lot. Yeah, unusual in that way, I suppose, but, um, but often you'll see patients where they're on minimal settings, they're doing, you know, breathing comfortably, but they just have lots and lots and lots of goop in their lungs. And that can be purulent secretions, it can be edema, it can be blood. And if that's something that we're having to help suction out a lot, that's something that's a really important consideration. Are they going to be attempting to cough, fail to do it, get clogged up, and, and have significant respiratory distress because of all those secretions? And then in general, the work of breathing. And this sort of combines all of, all of these factors. How much work are they taking to breathe, even with that support of the ventilator? Um, and so these are all factors that I take into account when I think about how to withdraw a ventilator. Thinking about the different settings, um, when you take the set rate away or reduce it, you may see that you unmask tachypnea, you may unmask apnea, and sometimes the apnea can be permanent, 
sometimes it can just be that we've hyperventilated them so much that their brain isn't telling them to breathe because they don't have um, enough CO2 saying, hey, take some breaths. Um, reducing PEEP, you can, that often, I think of pushing the, uh, the secretions and edema and such into the alveoli and keeping it stuck there. When you lower it, that can all sort of blossom forth. Um, pressure support, again, is, is the pressure that helps to generate those tidal volumes. Um, so the patient starts to take a breath in, the ventilator gives extra pressure to help inflate the lungs. So if you drop that, you can wind up with smaller volumes. Sometimes that's perfectly comfortable for the patient. Sometimes that's not. Sometimes it can make them breathe faster. Sometimes it can make them try to suck harder to get a bigger breath. And then as we talked about, FiO2, if you drop that, can lead to hypoxia. Doesn't always cause dyspnea. Sometimes it does. For patients who are on high settings for any of these, I will often do a wean. I will reduce one or, or two of these settings at a time give a good 15 minutes, medicate if needed, make sure that we get them comfortable with the medications before proceeding to wean further. And it's a tough balance of weaning. You don't want to drag out the process too long, but you also don't want to, uh, to go so fast that you drop the floor out from under them and give them horrible symptoms. And with that, um, titration of the medications is really important. Um, and making sure that we document the response to the medications so that we know how to titrate. There's some interesting old ideas in the literature. Um, there's some who talked about in folks who are chronic CO2 retainers letting that carbon dioxide level rise to, to give them sort of a natural narcosis that may improve their comfort some. It can also preclude interaction with their family. Um, as a matter of routine, I don't necessarily recommend this. There's talk of weaning vent settings to simply a pressure support of five with no set rate. This is, this is something that I used to try to do for people who had a lot of secretions or had other reasons not to extubate. Unfortunately, almost every single ventilator out there, certainly all of the ones in hospitals, have apnea backups that you can't turn off. So even when you get to the point where the patient is, is dead, is not breathing on their own, that ventilator will continue to trigger, will alarm with apnea ventilation. So as much as I like the idea of having some pressure support for certain patients, particularly with secretions, I haven't found a practical way to do this yet. And again, timing the steps for medication titration to comfort is the step that I, that I do advocate. Um, that's the one that I think makes sense. So again, um, there's no stellar evidence base for this. This is just my logic as somebody who's who's done this a lot, who's thought about ventilators a lot, who's thought about keeping comfortable as we withdraw them. Um, so from the typical settings, um, and in most medical and many surgical ICUs, you'll see uh, patients who are on ACVC, assist control, volume control. 
um, or SIMV, um, which is uh, synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, usually on a volume uh, setting. There's, from typical settings, there's typically not a big need to wean. Um, you may do what's called a spontaneous or self-breathing trial, which is the test that most ICUs will do sort of every morning as a patient is ready to, uh, or near, nearing ready to wean off the ventilator therapeutically. Um, and that can give you an idea of how that patient will do with minimal uh, support without that pressure from the ventilator. You can consider weaning to FiO2 as low as 21%. That's not typically done. It's, it's unusual to run a ventilator at 21%, but not impossible. And particularly if this is someone who's seemed sensitive to the effects of oxygen, you can certainly do it that way. From higher settings and some of the more exotic modes, um, bi-level, PRVC, uh, you don't have to worry about that much, but, but certainly bi-level and uh, pressure control, those are worth talking about with your intensivist. How do we convert to something that's a little more typical, that we're all more comfortable managing, and then wean from there? If you've got someone who's comfortable weaning it, great, that's okay. But uh, but even those I would need to, to think pretty carefully about and discuss with my RT um, in terms of how do we do this effectively and, and without inducing a lot of symptoms. So extubation uh, we've, we've touched on, and there are a lot of institutions where going straight to extubation is the norm. This is often advocated by pretty much everyone uh, or members of, of every category in healthcare. Um, it's often preferred by patients' families, certainly by practitioners. It feels to us like it would be much more comfortable, and it may indeed improve patient comfort. The hope is also that it improves the patient's opportunities to communicate if they're going to be able to. You certainly have had the experience, I would imagine, of attempting to communicate with a patient who is awake and trying to mouth words with that tube in, and I don't know about you, but I'm still a terrible lip reader, and I always feel awful, but I'm not very good at it. But there are definitely some, some uh, situations in which to consider not extubating. Um, those secretions that we talked about, and those can be either pulmonary or oral, worth working on getting those under control before considering extubating. Sometimes you just can't. Sometimes they just have so much that you, you can't effectively get them under control in a reasonable time. Things like airway edema and trauma um, are also important, uh, whether that's angioedema, whether that's oral trauma from the motor vehicle accident that they were in, sometimes things as simple as laryngeal edema that can develop with prolonged intubation. Um, there's a more recent paper out from a researcher in the Detroit area who now advocates for checking for what's called a cuff leak um, before withdrawal and potentially giving steroids if, if there isn't a cuff leak. What a cuff leak is, you have the, the endotracheal tube cuff sitting in the airway, so you deflate that cuff, you've got the tube sitting there. If there's, you, you have the ventilator trying to give breaths 
and if you have air escaping around the tube, then you have what's called a cuff leak. You have air that leaks around that tube and out, out of the patient. If everything that you put into the tube comes right back out the tube and to the ventilator, even as that cuff has been deflated, there's no space around that tube and you don't know what the airway will look like or feel like when you pull that tube out. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Massive hemoptysis, again, fortunately not something that we see a huge amount of. Um, I would say I see this most in, in my cancer ICU, but certainly something that you can imagine if a patient's been coughing up blood, we've been able to contain it and suck it out of the endotracheal tube. Um, and you know, using PEEP and pressure to keep it sort of quelled, you can imagine that the idea of removing that breathing tube, remo removing that pressure, and potentially having large amounts of blood coming out could be incredibly distressing to patient family, and honestly to providers too. Um, and so that's a situation where I will often advocate for one of those, uh, either the T-piece or the low ventilator settings, um, that sort of thing. The final category is tracheostomy, and this one is also really quite interesting to me. There's, there's talk in old literature from a good 20 or 30 years ago about decannulating tracheostomies. Um, and that, that's always really fascinated me. If you had someone who was able to breathe reasonably well on their own, where getting the tracheostomy out was a really important part of their goals, um, who didn't have airway obstruction, I, I suppose you could consider it. In general, um, tracheostomies don't seem to cause discomfort. Um, a lot of us act under the assumption that they're more comfortable than endotracheal tubes. There's there's some suggestion in literature and anecdotally that they're actually not that much more comfortable to patients um, than the endotracheal tube, but they certainly may facilitate communication. It's a lot easier to mouth words with, with nothing in your mouth. Um, and so again, I, I generally don't advocate for the removal of tracheostomies unless it is a really important part of the patient's goal or unless it is very clearly causing symptoms. Um, and that would be a really rare situation. Um, but again, something that you, you may see in some of the old literature, which I find really interesting. Um, so thinking about the setting and uh, a little modification on an, old, on an old quotation, you never get a second chance to make a last impression. This is gonna be likely a family's last memories of their loved one. This is gonna be what they take home with them, what they, what they remember um, of the end of that person's life. And so that's why I think it's so important to think through this, why it's so important to get it right. We want to make sure that the environment is private and quiet. Sometimes that's really hard to do in the intensive care unit. Uh, we want to think about those things like odors. Um, I'm sure that everyone has experienced some uh, less than pleasant fragrances, particularly in the ICU, whether that's from wounds or stool or blood or what have you. Um, a lot of the lighting that we have in the ICU is very harsh. 
when we can turn it into a more gentle lighting, great. Sometimes music is important to a patient and family. Sometimes it can be very soothing. I've seen anything from sort of the gentle new age music to the patient's favorite rock and roll. Um, I don't think I've heard heavy metal, but I imagine sometime in the next 20 years I will uh, have a patient where that is important. And basically we want to make sure that we're supporting everyone who's involved. The patient certainly, the family of course, but also our nurses, our respiratory therapists, um, the providers who are going to be taking care of this patient. Um, often we have developed a very strong relationship with that patient, with that family, and it can be really emotionally distressing on the providers too. We need to make sure that they have the time to provide support and care. We need to make sure that they, that they have the resources that they need to be able to provide what that patient and family need. Um, and we need to make sure that we take care of them emotionally too um, and, and take care of ourselves. We often forget that piece. Um, so in terms of symptoms, for pretty much any symptom, thinking about positioning, having a calm setting. Uh, we talked in the dyspnea lecture about fans having actually some evidence to support their use in reducing dyspnea. Opioids, certainly you've heard about quite a bit. Sometimes nebulizers, depending on the underlying pulmonary condition. Sometimes diuretics can be helpful. Anxiety, certainly benzodiazepines can be of use for agitation, antipsychotics. Pain, you've heard about almost ad nauseum by now. And then respiratory secretions is something we talk about a lot and we have talked about a lot. The literature does not actually support the use of anticholinergics. Um, based on studies, the data are very, very poor for their efficacy. Um, and, and that goes for both the sublingual atropine drops that are, are very commonly used, particularly in hospice, as well as for oral or um, IV or subcutaneous glycopyrrolate. That said, almost every hospice nurse I've talked to, almost every ICU nurse I've talked to, and, and even in my own experience, um, you, you do see effect. So the literature tells us no. Clinical experience tends to guide most of us to yes. Um, so really it just depends on the clinical situation it may be worth trying. Um, there's also the piece of making sure that we're treating patient dis distress as opposed to family distress or our own distress. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks have heard the analogy of, hey, so did your dad used to snore? That'll usually get a good chuckle if, if the patient did snore. Um, and comparing those respiratory secretions to snoring as long as the patient appears comfortable, as long as they don't appear to be bothering the patient, probably okay and probably not necessary to treat. Um, particularly if you can make that analogy to the snoring that they used to do. But if it does seem to be causing distress, by all means, trying to treat is very reasonable. So dosing and escalation, again, this is, the principles are very much the same, whether it's for dyspnea, pain, what have you, um, thinking about the time to peak effect of each medication, 
and making that the most frequent that you can give the medicine. You want to increase doses based on observed effect, not on, well, I feel like they need some more. Um, in my experience, I, I find that infusions are very rarely necessary in this process. We talk, or we used to talk a lot about, oh, just start them on a morphine drip. The titration that tends to happen with that um, is sometimes inappropriate and excessively rapid and uh, beyond what is appropriate to getting to the steady state of the, uh, the infusion rate. So really, bolus, 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 and it's, it's fairly unusual to need an infusion if it hasn't already been going on while they've been on the ventilator. Um, one other really important point um, that you will almost certainly be asked about repeatedly. Well, if I give this opioid, if I give this benzo, isn't that going to make them die faster? There are actually studies out there that show that judicious use of these medicines does not hasten death. And that's a really important point. We're not giving these medicines with the, with the goal of shortening someone's life. We are giving them with the goal of keeping the person comfortable. And that comfort, that ease of breathing, that decreased anxiety, decreased heart rate, certainly um, does not hasten their death. Now, if you go giving large doses that are not warranted, not needed, that certainly can. Um, but, uh, but these medicines, given, given thoughtfully, are okay. And that's a really important point for both families, patients, and for uh, nursing staff in particular. And so I made reference to this being a procedure. And again, I think it's really important to think of it that way. We think about placing a central line. We have checklists that we go through to think about all the different steps. Did I leave anything out? Am I forgetting anything? And so really, thinking of this in very much the same way is helpful. We want to make sure that we prepare everyone who's involved. We want to make sure we uh, prepare our place. We want to make sure that we prepare the medications we're going to give, when we're going to give them, how we're going to escalate them if we need to. And then we want to talk about the steps. We want to think about code status. If we're taking out the endotracheal tube with a plan to make someone comfortable, if the plan is to put it right back if they're in distress, probably doesn't make sense to, uh, to pull it in the first place, right? If we're going to jump on their chest when their heart stops, this is probably not a medically appropriate process to go through. We want to make sure that the paralytics are gone, not just turned off, but the effect is gone. Um, that can take quite a while. So if I know I'm preparing or considering this process in someone, I will often try to go to just intermittent paralytics a few days before to make sure that w when we're ready emotionally and cognitively that there isn't the, uh, the infusion holding us up. We want to deactivate the ICD if it's present, if that's appropriate to the goals. Um, thinking about when and how to stop IV fluids and tube feeds. Um, this isn't necessarily equivalent to withdrawing, it's simply withholding temporarily 
so that we don't add to symptoms. At some point, the continuous dialysis needs to stop. If that's going on, we need to think about those less common life supports. Stopping and, or weaning the ventilator with or without extubation. And then this question of pressors. I have typically turned them off at the time of, of uh, vent withdrawal. There are some who advocate doing it or keeping them going even after vent withdrawal so that you can continue to circulate medications more effectively. There's some who advocate turning them off well before um, you withdraw the ventilator to allow essentially a hypotensive encephalopathy going on. Really, I think it depends on the clinical situation, depends on your patient, depends on how essential it is that that tube come out. So that, uh, that is something that's very individualized. So in summary, again, uh, the point I really want you to take home is that withdrawal of life supports is a medical procedure, requires planning, and you have to think about the individual patient um, their condition, their needs, and, and what we need to do to make sure that they're comfortable at the end of their life. And with that, questions? What do you do with, um, with the lag time between like your presser, or your, sorry, your paralytic coming off and somebody has like renal failure where it's going to prolong and the family saying like, it needs to be today, everybody's here, let's go, let's go. Yeah. So the you're so. exactly. So the the question is, what do you do if you've got someone who's paralyzed um, on paralytics and family's ready now and the patient's not ready? Um, to be honest, I I tell them, look, we've still got this medication in effect. I can't tell if they're uncomfortable or not. I don't want to cause them any suffering as we're going through this process. I recommend that we wait until it has worn off. And again, that's why if I'm thinking about are we, are we talking about withdrawing life support, if I can go to intermittent several days in advance, I try to do that when at all possible. Mm -hmm. But yes, that, that is a very challenging situation. Right. I mean, if you had the situation with the family, they'll actually just push you to do it anyway. Then you have to sort of put in your physician battery, like, this is not appropriate to do, or... You know? I, in general, so the, the question is, do families ever push you to, to withdraw life support even when you, at a time when you feel it's not appropriate? Usually you can say, look, they can't, they have no, no ability to show us whether they're comfortable. If you, if you phrase it in terms of, I want to take the best possible care of your loved one, I understand that, that you're ready now, but we have to do what's right for them too. In general, they they can process that and step back and say, you know, okay, we can take more time talking with. But as much as you can think ahead and prepare and prevent that from happening, the better. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, 
where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.